0: Is it that has made Charlotte Chapel special? What is it that's made Charlotte Chapel special? Is it this building in Row Street? It was opened in 1911. It's actually the third building that Charlotte Chapel has owned. Is it the comfortable pews? It was the reference, it was, it was shared with us yesterday, that in fact these were temporary pews because at the time they couldn't afford decent ones and they always decided that they couldn't afford them later as well. Was it the pews? Is it the history? All 208 years of it. Um, some remarkable events, not, not least the revival that took place in 1905, 1906 where they think a thousand people came to Christ, and a church that was nearly about to shut sprang to life again. Is it the ministers? You can see them named in the brochure. Many who are also well known outside uh, of uh, Edinburgh to the wider Christian church. Well, no doubt each of these elements have played their influence and have shaped our congregation But they don't get to the heart of what makes Charlotte Chapel special. What is it? What is it that is indispensable as we move to the new location? Well, for those with a short attention span, let me tell you what it is. It is this. It is the presence of God. There is a crisis in the Christian church today in many churches, and it's this, God is no longer present. There are still religious buildings, there are choirs, there are hymns, there are organs, there are ministers, there are semis, there are lots of committee meetings, lots, but people have failed to notice a crucial absence. God has left the building. Now is this really possible? Can we really be busy doing church but miss the whole point? Is that possible? Well, Jesus wrote letters to the churches in Asia Minor. You can read them uh, in the book of Revelation. He communicated to the Apostle John to write these letters down and send them to the churches. And uh, you'll find that he addresses the church in Laodicea. And they were very impressed with themselves. Uh, They were very proud of their church. They they said this, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But the assessment of Jesus is quite different. You do not realize, he says, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What a mismatch. We're rich. We don't uh, need a thing. We're great. You are pitiful, says the Lord Jesus. You are poor. They were deluding themselves, weren't they, as a church? In truth, they were a lukewarm church who had failed to notice the absence of Jesus. Where was Jesus? Well, Jesus says in that letter to them, uh, he's standing outside the door of the church. He's knocking on the door. He's patiently waiting. He's very keen to come in. He would love to have genuine, warm, table fellowship with his people. But they, they've shut him out. He's outside the church. What is the one vital thing that we need as a church? What, what is the essential thing that we, that we need in our lives? It is this, we need God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is what we need. And that's why I want to turn our attention to the book of Exodus. And so if you uh, have a Bible, please open to Exodus chapter 33. If you don't have one, hopefully you'll find a red Bible. If you're missing one, I've got another one here, I'll throw it to you. Uh, You'll find it on page 92 of the Red Church Bibles, Exodus chapter 33. Let me take the time to read the chapter. I'd love to read more, but we don't have the time. Exodus chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses... Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now... Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me. Lead, this, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy but my face must not be seen. This is God's word. There are three things we need to see here about the presence of God. Firstly, the presence of God is dangerous. What's the context? Well, God created us to live in friendship with him. But from the third chapter of the Bible onwards, we read of how we have rebelled against our loving creator. We rejected his words. We walked away. And we broke the friendship. And the rest of the Bible really is the story of how God has been seeking to restore that friendship with rebel sinners. And in the book of Exodus... We get to understand what it takes to make this happen. It is no small thing to restore this broken relationship. And the book of Exodus that tells us the history of the events of Israel, of how God dealt with the people of Israel. And they give us a, a, a picture of the reality of what it takes. God had rescued this people from slavery in Egypt. He'd saved them from Pharaoh's army. He provided for them as they wandered through the wilderness. And he brought them then to this mountain uh, named here, Mount Horeb. A little bit earlier, it's called Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain. And this is like the big moment. God rescuing his people, bringing them to the mountain. This this moment is almost like a a marriage service. And, And... Promises, covenant promises are made. God says, you know, I, I will be your God and you will be my people. And, uh, and, and there's a certain way to live. Do you want that? And the people said yes. They said yes to God. Yes to his covenant. Yes to that. Glorious. God had redeemed a people who would be his own special people. A relationship restored. And the wonder of that event it is an extraordinary moment. And even as the, the, the cloud of God's presence covers the mountain, and as the people look up at the top of it, there was like an all-consuming fire, the glory of God. While this is happening, God says to Moses, "Well, will come up the mountain, because God's got some wonderful instructions. He says to Moses, uh, I want you to build a portable tent. I want you to make a home for me, a dwelling, which will, which will be at the very center of the camp. They were a nomadic people. And as they travel to the promised land, I want you to build this glorious tent. And I'm going to make my home right there in the middle of you as you walk. And I'll be there with you to bless you. What nation has their God so close as as you're going to have? What a special thing. And so Moses is up the mountain. He's getting all these instructions. And then disaster Crisis. This chapter comes in the middle of a huge crisis moment. In the shadow of Mount Sinai, with this glorious cloud of God's presence, only a few weeks after the promises, the people say to Aaron, make us an idol. And they make a golden calf. And they decide that they're going to have a worship service and proclaim, here are the gods that took you out of Egypt. And they decide to worship this golden calf. Instantly, they smash up the first and second commandments. And then what follows from that is almost like a wild party of the worst extremes as they break a few more of the commandments. And God says to Moses, go down they've gone wild and i'm going to wipe them out i'll start again with you moses and in these chapters we have four prayers of moses as he seeks to be uh, someone who's going to be a mediator between a holy god who is angered rightly by the sins of the people who made those promises of covenant loyalty, but so quickly ripped it in shreds. It's as if if a a, a husband has gone on honeymoon with his bride and he returns to the bedroom to find another man in the bed. It, It is the horror of it. Moses comes down with the stone tablets. He smashes them because, in effect, that's what they've done. They've smashed up the whole thing. It's ruined. And Moses intercedes. We don't have time to look at all the prayers. But we should notice that um, when we rebel against God and reject his words, when we worship and serve other things as idols, when we choose to live for other things in the place of God, when we choose to come and and make our own pick-and-mix version of God as they had, we'd like to think of God like this. And we can play that game too. When we come up with our own version of the God that we want to worship, that's fashioned to our tastes, we have got big problems. Big problems with the living God who is there. Our sin, our false worship has serious consequences of estrangement. And we see that in this chapter from the very first verse of chapter 33. Just look back at it with me. Look at how the Lord refers to the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's as if God has has now disowned them. He's turned them back to Moses. You brought them out. Now, despite their unfaithfulness, God is still going to deliver on his promises to Abraham because we have a God who keeps his promises. When he makes an unconditional promise, he's always going to deliver. He even says, verse 2, he's going to send an angel to help drive out their enemies so they can possess this abundant land. But their rebellion has cost them something very significant. Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Of course, no tractors in those days. You yoked up some cows to provide the pulling power, but a cow uh, uh, that didn't want to submit to the farmer would kind of bend its neck, make it stiff, so they couldn't get the yoke on. And this is what the people are like, God is saying. They refuse to submit to God. They refuse to listen to what God has said. They are a stubborn people, prone to sin and rebellion. So God says, I will not go with you. Why is that? Why will God not go with this stubborn, rebellious, sinful people? Well, the answer is verse 3, because God's presence is dangerous. God's presence is dangerous. Look at verse 3. It's dangerous for sinful people to be around a holy God. Actually, look at verse 5. You see the same thing in verse 5. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I'll decide what to do with you. Now, pause for a moment. Have we understood the holiness of God? I think we're in danger in the Christian church today to forget the utter holiness of God. And these chapters challenge us, provoke us. Have we understood this God? Have we seen how totally opposed and provoked God is as we try to come up with our own gods by the way we refuse to acknowledge him as the true God by our rebellion and sin? Not for a single moment, God says, could he be amongst this stiff-necked people whose sin provokes his just anger. We dare not approach this God any way we fancy It's not up to us to come up with the terms. It's not up to us to come up with the way we'd like to worship God, that we'd like to see God, that we'd like to treat Him. We dare not approach Him just as we are. God's presence is dangerous. As we read in that chapter, even Moses couldn't cope with seeing the full glory of God. Verse 20, you cannot see my face. No one can see me and live. Meeting with God is no small thing. I've heard some um, atheists brag about what they would like to say if they eventually did meet God, if he was there, and how they'd want to condemn God. Let me tell you, it's all foolish talk. I've just been reading the, the book of Job in my daily readings. Page after page, uh, Job demands the opportunity to talk to God, to, uh, to be vindicated, to show that his sufferings were, were, were not his fault. And then God meets with him. And talks with him. And how does Job respond? All he can think of doing is to repent. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Do you know what? Even as Christian believers, we can treat coming into God's presence as if it were nothing special. Nothing significant. We can rush into our prayers. We can hurry into our meetings with so little thought of the awesome majesty of the one we are meeting with. But there's a second thing we need to see about the presence of God here. And it's this. God's presence is indispensable. Now consider this. God had promised that they would get the land. He's going to deliver on that. But it's not enough for Moses, is it? Look at uh, verse 15. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? If we had all the material blessings that this world could give, and if we had all the health to be able to enjoy it fully, would that be enough for us? Would that be enough for you? All the toys, all the pretty things, all the stuff, all your health, is that enough for you? We're going to a bigger church building. It's going to be more comfortable. We're leaving the pews behind. It's going to be more accessible. It's going, to be, it's, going to, it's going to be more opportunities for us as a church community to enjoy being together. Is that enough for us? Moses was not content with just the promised land. He did not just want the gifts from God. He wanted the giver. He knew that the gifts of God would mean absolutely nothing without the giver himself. So to look at this world in all its exuberance of colors and shapes and beauty and creativity and power that is evident in the universe just points us to the beauty and the power and the creativity of the God who made it all. Why would you settle just for the stuff? Think about the God who made that stuff. all that makes life wonderful at its best, all that makes it exhilarating and satisfying, it points us to the fact that there is an all-satisfying, wonderful, glorious God who conceived of it all, who created it all. Why would you settle just for the stuff? And although Moses knew that the holiness of God is, is dangerous to sinners, he knows that God's presence alone is indispensable for the people to become truly holy and truly happy. What else, he says, will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? God's presence is indispensable because without it, his people are indistinguishable from the rest of the nations. What made Israel special was the true and living God. And how then could God's name and character be known in the world of his people are no different to the rest of the nations? That's what Moses is saying. And of course what was true for God's ancient church is true for the church of Christ. It is the presence of God amongst his people that makes the people of God special. That's what it is. If God is not present with us, then we are indistinguishable from the rest of our society. If God is not present, then we have no hope for a messed up world. For our only hope is in this holy God who can heal and redeem our broken lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what is glorious. Moses knew this. And so there are two main requests here, aren't there, that I believe we should ask as we move to, from Rose Street to Shamwick Place. Two things. Verse 13, teach me your ways. Secondly, verse 18, show me your glory. Look at these two things, these two requests. Firstly, teach me your ways. If you are pleased with me, verse 13, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Just think about human relationships, particularly the marriage relationship. A good relationship is about learning each other's ways, isn't it? Knowing our habits, our likes and dislikes. It's about getting to know each other personally and deeply. Only then... Will we learn how to please the other person, which we want to happen, don't we? In a healthy relationship. We want to find out what will make them happy. What will make them joyful. What will find favor and promote a really healthy, happy relationship. And um, it's going to be different things for different people, isn't it? No two people are the same. I found a bit of housework and flowers work a treat. I don't know what it is for you in, in, in whatever relationships you're involved with. And so it is wise to take time to learn, isn't it? If you want a successful relationship, take time to learn about the person. You want to get to know them. And I think, in essence, that's, that's behind this request here. As Moses says to the Lord, please teach me your ways. I want to find favor with you. I, I, I want to enjoy you. I want to please you. I want to live for you and thank you. So please teach me your ways. He desires the presence of God. He doesn't want any estrangement. I hate it. If, you know, if there's a moment where things are a bit frosty between me and Mrs. Reese, I mean it doesn't happen very often for her fault, it's my fault. Right, let's get that on the record. But I hate that moment where you sense the separate. I hate it. I want to put it right. Teach me your ways. Oh, God, this is the, this is the, the longing of, of, of the psalmist in Psalm 25, verse 4. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. You're my hope, God. Show me your ways. Teach me your ways. We've just been working through the book of Colossians, haven't we? Do you remember Paul's main prayer? It was there in the first chapter. He says, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. We need him to teach us his ways. And as we seek the presence of God, verse 17 is a wonderful verse of encouragement to us as Christians. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. And let me tell you why this is encouraging. It's not because we're just like Moses here. This, that would be very discouraging. If we're anywhere in this story, where are we? Stiff-necked people, right? That's where we are. Moses has this unique relationship with God. He's this unique mediator between the people and God. No, no, we're we're, we're, we're with the crowds who have got hearts that keep yearning for idols. Little children flee from idols, says the Apostle John to the church. But we have a better mediator between ourselves and God than Moses. What hope is there for stiff-necked, sinful rebels like us to ever know the presence of God without getting fried? Well, it's this. Because God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our mediator. And God told Moses, I am pleased with you. But listen to what God said to Jesus at His baptism. You are my Son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And as you hear the voice from heaven declaring at the baptism of Jesus, you are the one I'm well pleased with. Know this, that there is a hope for us as rebel sinners. That God will answer this prayer. That he would teach us his ways. That we would be able to please him. As Jesus, our sinless mediator, offered his life. It was to be an atonement for our sins to cover over our rebellion and sin, so that he chooses to remember it no longer. He couldn't go with us if uh, we maintained our stiff-necked rebellion. Let me tell you, there is a day of wrath coming for those who do not repent. If you are not trusting Christ, now is the time to respond, my friend. He's done it all for you, but there is a day of wrath coming. And if you want to be safe from that day, this is the day now to come and repent. Say to God, you're sorry and put your trust in Christ because that sacrifice on the cross will cover over your sins. And the Lord will look on you uh, as Christ's righteousness covers you. And he'll say, I am well pleased. Wow. Wonderfully, Moses gets his prayer answered. They're going to get to the land. They're going to know God's presence still among them. But this is amazing, I think. It's not enough for moses this is the boldest prayer in the bible i think he's got what he's asked for god says i'm going to wipe them out i'll start with you moses no you can't do that god it'll be very bad for your reputation remember your promises god i won't wipe them out moses prays lord would you forgive them in fact blot out my name from the book so that they could be forgiven god says i can't do that you're a he doesn't say this, but this is why I can't, because he, Moses is still a sinner. God, you've got to go with us. He gets it. God says, I'll go with you. Well, done, isn't it? It's done. No. Verse 18. Now, show me your glory. What a prayer. Have you prayed this? Have you been bold enough to pray this? Glory, what, what, what do we think of glory? Well, we often think about light, bright light. I suppose there is that element of brightness when we think about glory. But the root word is, is about weightiness, heaviness, the worth of God. And Moses is saying, Please show me your greatness. Please show me your value. Please show me your full worth, O God. I don't want to just know how to please you, I want to know you in all your glory. As I speak of it, do you not long for that? For our church and in our lives? Teach me your ways. Show me your glory. It's great to meet together, isn't it? We've experienced God's mercy and grace. Don't you long for more from this God? That we would know him. In a deeper, greater way. That's what's going to make this church special. That's what's made it special. It'll be different in the new building, we'll all be sitting slightly differently. But the thing that's going to make it special is the presence of God and of people who come with expectancy that he would teach them, and and that he would reveal to us more of his glory. How do we experience this? Now, there's certainly some pyrotechnics going on here, but it's much more than pyrotechnics. In fact, God says, actually, you can't bear to see my glory. I'm going to stick you in a little rock place, and I'm going to cause my glory to pass by and all you're going to see really when I remove my hand is the after effects of, of my glory that's all they can bear to see the after effects of God's glory to see it full face would be too much but actually the wonderful thing in these verses is if you pay attention to it we see the glory of God through our ears isn't that funny? We see the glory of God through our ears. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And he actually, you know, his eyes are covered over as the glory passes by. But he hears these words. Look at uh, chapter 34 and verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. There's our hope, isn't it? This holy God forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's all Moses got to see, as it were. He got to hear and see the after effects of God's glory. But you know, there was a day when Moses got to see even more of God's glory, wasn't there? Do you remember when? It was at the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. Moses and Elijah appear. And he, his likeness is transformed into this incredible brightness, brighter than the sun. So there is a sense of the light when it linked to the glory of God. And Moses got to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do we long for that as a church? Do we long for his presence in our church and in our lives? Do we want to know his ways? Do we want to see his glory? Well, what do we need? We need God's words. We are going to see the glory of God as we listen to his words, as it reveals the greatness of his name, the great I am. Every name of God tells us something profound about God that we can, we can grab hold of and know Him truly. We see His glory in the greatness of His character. And all that we see here, all that's described about His attributes, we see His glory in the face of Christ. How precious to have the eyewitness apostle accounts of the life of Jesus! How precious to have this spirit-inspired word, so that we can gaze upon the glory of uh, of Christ's face and see the true glory of God. Will you join with me in praying this as we go to our new building? Teach us your ways. Show us your glory. Let's pray.